I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Sinister Sightings 250. All right, jumping right in. Hi again, ladies. I'm the mom of the weird kid, the one you read in episode 226 of Sinister Sightings. You asked if Bug ever stopped his weirdness and his premonition dreams or comments. The answer is no. The long answer is hell no. It has gotten weirder and more accurate the older he gets. I have one of his predictions that ended up being right. And a weird puzzle piece, ghost sighting. Sorry for the link, but here we go. A friend of mine was going through IVF. Bug being Bug knew something that they didn't. She was on her second round of IVF, and unfortunately, she lost her baby. Bug being the weird tween he is, asks to call her. So I call Miss S for him. He says, don't worry, the baby is happy that you've been fighting for her, but she's not ready to come just yet. She'll be here in your arms soon. But first, you will adopt a boy that's around my age, and he will be in your world. He's going to love soccer, and his hair is going to be super cool. When he and I meet, we will instantly be best friends. Around two years after he becomes your son, your baby girl will be back. But you won't have her. She'll be another baby you're going to take in your home. Her heart will be sick, but because of your love and her dad and her brother, she will not only pull through, she will be strong. And then will be your baby forever. Everything down to the years he told her has been correct everything. Weird ghost sighting. We moved to Virginia recently due to my husband's job. We live in a place that is very historic and it's rich with the indigenous people here as well. We decided to do a 23andMe because for some reason we felt beyond connected to this land. Come to find out that I'm a descendant of one of the prior chiefs of the Padawamic tribe. I found this beyond interesting, not only because we are so close to where they are still settled today, but it explained why my whole family was connected to the land. On the fall equinox, our family was out by a fire celebrating the good harvest from our garden and healthy family as we were saying our goodbyes to the souls we lost throughout the year. We are pagan and very spiritual. My boys decided they were heading inside and my husband went to tuck them in like every night. We were wrapping up our celebration and slowly putting the fire out. When I looked to my right, I swore I saw my husband standing by the door. I laugh and say, quit being a creeper and come sit with me. I closed my eyes and enjoyed the smell of the fire, but mixed with it, there was a scent of tobacco and wildflowers. I breathed in deep because it smelt of home. When I opened my eyes, I looked over to my left where my husband's seat was. But instead of seeing my husband, I was faced with an indigenous person sitting in his seat with flowers in their hair and a pipe in hand. Their eyes glittered with happiness, and their hair was just beautiful. The person gave a smile and a wave and puffed out a ring of smoke. Then I blinked, and they were gone. The embers of the fire had almost completely died down after the visit, so I put the rest out and thanked the universe as well as the visitor and walked inside. We have seen this person around almost every time we have lost someone or something joyous happens in our family. It feels like they bring comfort and love where they go. Sorry for the long story. I'll write in again with more stories of Bug and all of our weird adventures that have happened to us that end with spirits of all kinds coming into our lives. Remember, kids are creepy. The universe loves you all. Don't get scared, weird mom. Kids do say the creepiest shit. Like, for real. How did he know literally down to the year, you know? Right. Hopefully that brought some peace to your friend, too. Yeah, I mean, weirded her out, but then peace. Yeah. 
Okay, the next one. Hometown murder. Hey there, Donna and Carrie. It's Sarah from Illinois. I wrote in last year about the haunted store and gym I used to work at, and I heard you gals are running low on stories. Well, buckle up, buttercups, because I'm going to tell you a fucked up tale that has happened in the area that I grew up. Most of this information is from Season 14, Episode 11 of Snap. I'm also not sorry for my added commentary. We start in the town I grew up in, in Mechanicsburg, Illinois. It's a small farming town of 500 people. Everyone knows everyone, sometimes a little too much, and not a lot of crime takes place aside from a couple of speeding tickets or random cheap beer-induced domestic disturbances. That was until October 29th, 2012, when a man was driving home on a lonely county road around 3 p.m. It was deer season, so the man who was a hunter was keeping an eye out for them. I'm sure you two know the country roads and deer, they're not a good equation. He was watching the creek as he drove when he saw something that didn't look like a deer. He couldn't figure out what it was. It was visible, but at the same time, not. He shrugged it off and drove home, but as he was eating dinner, he began to ponder what it could have been. He called his neighbor, and the two men drove back to the spot and approached the object. At first, they thought maybe it was a dead hog, but as they got closer, they realized it wasn't a hog, but a man, and he had been butchered. He was decapitated. His hands and feet were removed. Now, the two men called the police, who had zero experience with this sort of thing. Captain John Hayes from the county sheriff's department was stunned by this discovery. Jason Neville from the State Journal Register said maybe it was someone who came down from Chicago and dumped the body. The search for the dead man's identity would soon have the investigators asking about gangs, drugs, and a young woman who sang in her church choir, Watasha Ditton McCaster. Watasha was born in 1990 and grew up in South Chicago. She was a daughter of a hardworking ex-military man. Her dad worked very hard to support his family. Watasha learned early on the importance of always doing your best. She was successful at everything she did. In elementary school, she was already a serious, quiet girl, you know, a good student. As well as being musically talented, she grew up singing in the church choir and was in the school band. She wasn't a wallflower, but in the ninth grade, she started dating the most popular boy in school. Norman Ramel McCaster. Their backgrounds were vastly different. Norman's father was hustling on the Chicago street corners. Norman spent his formative years in Arkansas with his maternal grandmother. At 12, he returned to Chicago to live with his other grandma and was reunited with his father. Norman turned out to be a very good kid, very outgoing, very likable, and he turned his youthful energy in a positive direction. Norman was interested in all sports, but he most of all loved wrestling. He was also a ladies' man, according to his father. One of the first girls he dated was Watasha. They first started going out in ninth grade and never really stopped. There was nothing exclusive about their relationship. That wasn't Norman's style. His parents said he had a lot of girlfriends, but which teenage athlete doesn't? His college years were cut short after campus police were called to a frat party to break up a fight and ended up arresting Norman for drinking underage. 
The incident cost Norman his scholarship. He dropped out of college and joined the National Guard to try to do better for himself and pay for school. He also started dating Watasha again. She was attending college at University of Illinois in Springfield. She wanted to get her bachelor's and join the military, followed by attending dental school. They started seeing each other on the weekends and on school breaks. Norman's parents liked her. They said that she was always nice and seemed intelligent. Norman saved up all his money to buy her a ring and nearly a year into their relationship asked her to marry him. She said yes and they got married at City Hall in Springfield on October 26, 2010. They settled in Springfield and Watasha joined a church and began singing in the choir and Norman became a volunteer wrestling coach for a local high school. He also worked for a temp agency. They lived on the North End and didn't have a lot of problems. They were friendly and good neighbors. However, things weren't as perfect as they seemed. Norman didn't talk to his family much, only coming into contact with them once a month when he went to Chicago for drill. It really bothered his dad. His son had started avoiding him. He said, every time I called him, he was busy. He was doing something. He's this, he's that. By October 2012, he had started to wonder, was his son in some sort of trouble? On October 29, 2012, Mechanicsburg police had a mystery on their hands. Jason Neville said, I was listening to the police scanner, and all of a sudden, I started to hear chatter about a body being found dumped. There was blood on the guardrail, which suggested someone had stopped on the road and rolled or dragged the body over the embankment. There's tall grass. The only way you would have been able to see the body is if you were actually looking. And based on the decomp of the body, it appeared to be several days old. Investigators first thought that maybe it was drug or gang-related. This kind of thing just rubbed me wrong because Norman is a person of color and the area he was found in isn't known for equality. My first real relationship was with a black man and I was the talk of the town, I roll. Local authorities assume that they were after more than one culprit simply because of the amount of work it would have taken to dismember a body and transport it. Mechanicsburg is about 15 minutes away from the area where Norman and Watasha lived. It was extremely difficult to identify the body as all of its identification had been removed. Fingerprints, teeth. Investigators worked through the night searching for the other body parts and found nothing. However, while searching the area, they found a receipt from Walmart on the side of the road. At the time, they didn't know if it was connected. Two things suggested it might have been. One, there was blood on it. And two, there was a purchase of a saw. Investigators went to Walmart the next day and pulled the security tapes. They saw the person making the purchase for the items on the receipt. They didn't exactly fit the profile of a drug dealer or a gangbanger. P.S. I hate that word, gangbanger, and if it's offensive, I do apologize, but they use that word in the show. It was a young lady, and six minutes before midnight on October 25th, four days before the body was found. By the way, this dumbass used a credit card to purchase the stuff, so investigators immediately knew who she was. Watasha Denton McCaster. They still haven't identified the victim, though. On October 31st, the coroner performed the autopsy on the man known as John Doe. It was apparent that he had been dead several days and he was dismembered with a reciprocating saw. The saw, however, wasn't the murder weapon, which led them to believe that he had died from a head wound and was dismembered post-mortem. 
Toxicology reports came back negative and there were no visible wounds on the body, at least the parts they had. Forensic scientist Corey Vermia said, I knew that we would be able to obtain a DNA profile. Identifying that profile would take time, though. Investigators started surveillance on Watasha. The more they followed her, the less she looked like a killer. She was going to class, meeting with people, and going out to eat. Investigators collected her garbage, which consisted mostly of junk mail, nothing out of the ordinary. There were also numerous empty bottles of Visine. Investigators discarded them, not thinking they were connected. Two weeks after the body was found, investigators found ID cards, credit cards, and a military ID belonging to Norman McCaster. And they were all cut up with scissors. Since they knew Norman was in the National Guard, they followed up with his unit and found out that he hadn't shown up for drill on October 25th. His supervisors referred to him as a soldier's soldier. He never missed a drill. They then followed up with a temp agency he worked for, and they found out that Norman missed his most recent assignment on the 29th, the day the body was found. Investigators were convinced they were on the right track. Investigators started to keep tabs on Watasha, getting a GPS on her car. They sent the DNA sample to the Department of Defense. On November 7th, Watasha filed for divorce from Norman. Investigators found receipts for cleaning products, gloves, plastic wrapping, and air fresheners. On the same day her husband went missing, Watasha went to Lowe's and ordered a large freezer. An hour later, she canceled the order, and then a few hours later after that, she purchased the saw at Walmart. Investigators believe she dismembered or at least killed Norman in the house. They found a bathroom towel in the garbage with blood on it. There was also a pair of latex gloves with blood on them. They compared the blood on the gloves to the John Doe, and it was a match. The Army's Crime Laboratory verified the torso matched the DNA profile in their database. With a positive ID, they contacted Norman's family. They didn't want to tell the family what was going on over the phone, so his family came to Springfield. His father asked to see the body, and the coroner said that would not be a good idea. The family said Watasha had called them at the end of October to say she was worried about Norman. She said he was running around with people who were on drugs, which was a lie. His parents didn't believe it, and a few days later, she called back to tell them Norman had left. His father asked her why, and she said that he owed people drug money, which was a lie, and that he was out of control. Investigators decided it was time to confront Watasha. On November 26, they pulled into her drive after she did and convinced her that they were investigating a missing person. They told her that the guard asked them to help because Norman was missing. She agreed to speak with them at the sheriff's office to talk. She didn't appear nervous or upset. She told investigators that in the past few months, their marriage began to fall apart. He started hanging out with some guys or whatever, and he just started changing. She also claimed he was on drugs, and she said, I'm like falling out of love, and it's really hard for me being pre-med and a college student trying to graduate. She claimed that she was a church-going person and wouldn't be involved in this kind of stuff. She said she kicked him out on the 24th. She said he took everything with him, IDs, everything, which we know is a lie as they found his IDs in the trash. She said she didn't want to keep anything, and the investigator said, because you threw it all out in the garbage, that's why we're here. We know where Norman is at. They gave her the search warrant and that they were investigating the murder and he had been killed and his body had been dismembered. 
She was calm when they told her and said, that's not right. You got to find another person. And then she said she wanted a lawyer. They placed her under arrest and her response was, okay. On March 26, 2014, Watasha went on trial in Springfield. The prosecution showed journals found in the search of the house filled with complaints about her husband. He needs to be more loving. He needs to care. He needs to bring me roses, bring me flowers. She came off quite narcissistic. They found a calendar with the date of their second anniversary, October 26, blacked out with a permanent marker. Her defense attorney tried to make up something believable, but it didn't work. The prosecution had several witnesses who claimed Norman did not do drugs. His squad leader said that he passed every drug test and never had any indications he was ever on drugs, which coincided with the toxicology report. A careful review of the autopsy revealed that the original examiner had missed something. There were high levels of tetrahydrolazine found in Norman's body. Large amounts can be fatal. Prosecutors asked pathologists what it was, and he said it was an active ingredient in visine. If you remember, they found the numerous bottles in her trash. Although there was no real proof, they did find in her search history it consisted of hitmen in Springfield and how to get away with murder. The defense did her best to argue. Her lawyer, I swear she annoyed me. She said, there's no way to know the identity of the person who pressed the keys who created the search. In December 2012, investigators had a witness come forward who had a class with Watasha. He took the stand and testified that she had come to him with a request to borrow a gun. She said her dad was coming into town and they were going to go shooting. On October 24th, he did give her the gun and he said she returned it the next day and there were only two rounds missing. According to prosecutors, those two bullets went into Norman's head. Although there may have been evidence that a gun wasn't used. April 1st, 2014, the jury reached a verdict after seven hours of deliberation. They found Watasha guilty, convicted of first-degree murder. Watasha showed no emotion. She was sentenced on June 25th, and she received 55 years for murder, 25 years for dismembering his body. Illinois doesn't have the death penalty, but when convicted of first-degree murder, you must serve the entire amount of the sentence. After sentencing, she finally showed some emotion and read a tearful statement, still saying she didn't do it. Former Sheriff Williamson said if the body had been moved about 15 feet further into the woods, it may have never been found. Watasha will be 89 when she's eligible for parole in 2079. The rest of Norman's body has never been found. Hopefully this wasn't too long and I got everything correct. I love you both so much. Stay tuned for more creep-tastic stories from my hometown of Springfield, Illinois, and some more stories from my friends. Stay creepy. Well, thankfully she had so many errors, like using the credit card and not putting his body 15 feet further into the woods. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, she may never have been found. Right. That's what's so hard, too, about these cases is that like, people can say whatever they want to about you after you've passed. Like, you know, luckily he had service records that showed he always passed drug tests and that sort of thing. Because, I mean, she literally was just saying whatever she wanted to about him once he had passed. Yeah, exactly. been murdered. Let me, let me rephrase that. Because yeah. he didn't pass. He was freaking murdered. And for, like, no reason. If that was her complaint of, like... I need to spend more time with him and all of that. Yes. 
<laughs> well, you know, when you kill him, you're not going to spend more time with him. Well, and I mean, you know, you don't have to murder someone. You can always divorce them. Right. I mean, that's an option too, ma'am. I don't know. And and I realize that domestic violence and all of that is a whole nother thing when it comes to that. But in this situation, just divorce him. Right. I feel like if there was domestic violence, she would have wrote about it in her journals more so than right. the things he was lacking. Absolutely. Yeah, this was, she just wasn't happy and this is the route that she chose. Yeah. I love this one. The title is their first name and it says, but don't say. <laughs> so this one's anonymous. Hey, y'all. I heard your call for ghost stories. Running low. It's October 19th for those who want to know. <gasps> That's a rum. It is. This story is from a coworker of mine. We are working underground in the metro tunnels. In order to work around the tracks, we have to take a class on safety, and we're given these cardinal rules, rules that were written in blood. That is to say, these rules are because someone had lost their life from not having these rules. It's a dangerous location for work. I'm a construction worker and one of your male listeners. We're escorted onto the tracks for work after the trains get shut down for the evening. Our escort, let's call him Buck, has worked on these tracks for over 20 years. He was doing the usual, and he was taking some photos of the site. He fell forward onto the ground, injuring his knee. This was the first time for him to fall in 20 years on the track, and he didn't think too much of it. That is, until he was looking at the photos he had taken. In the photo he took when he fell, he could see this face in the tunnel. The photo spooked him, of course, and he was showing others the photo to show his story was true. After a little while, he noticed his knee wasn't recovering. He could feel something there causing his pain to last. Buck has a third eye since elementary, and he thought about what he could do to try to rid himself of whatever was attaching to his injury. Two days ago, he decided he would delete that cursed photo, hoping that would help. Yesterday, he woke up and the pain had ceased. Creep it real and don't hold on to haunted photos. Let that shit go. Love your podcast. Love y'all. I'm a creep and naughty member, but I will leave this story without my name. XOXO Gossip Girl. Yes. Love that you said that too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I never thought of that. Like, you know, you always hear stories of they took something like the black sand you're not supposed to take or something yeah. and it like curses you. But I've never thought of that. Like a photo being like, get rid of my evidence, bitch. Right. Poor Buck. I know. And you know that had to hurt, though, following. Just on a metal, like, all I could picture was, like, like a metal bolt that he Uh hit his knee on. Ooh, that hurt me. It's hard to walk on the tracks and stuff. It's it's hard to walk on flat ground for me. Look. That's true. I know my strengths and walking on uneven surfaces ain't one of them. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, this one is not the mother. Hello, beautiful creepsters. Thank you so much for your wonderful podcast and allowing me to feel like I have friends to connect with anytime I need some laughs. I'm going to share the story of my daughter's haunted house. She and her husband bought their first home about four years ago in a small town in rural Illinois. They have two beautiful girls, Gail and May. When Gail was about three years old and May was a newborn, the house began to have some unexpected activity. For background, my daughter Rose sleeps in a converted attic with her two girls and her husband sleeps on the main floor. Her husband works from home and tries to get his work done late into the night when the girls are sleeping. 
Since he stays up late, he typically sleeps in and wakes up around 10. As most of us are aware, kids wake up at the ass crack of dawn and are not at all apologetic about waking anyone else up who would rather sleep in. They also go to bed early and no parent in their right mind would want to keep them up late. With all that in mind, and an infant who still wakes up in the middle of the night, Rose retires early with the little ones up in their bedroom. She's nursing the youngest daughter, so she doesn't need to get up to make a bottle in the kitchen right outside her husband's bedroom. So he was surprised one night to hear Rose up and rattling around the kitchen several hours after they went to bed. He thought that Gail or Rose may have just needed a drink, or Rose came down to get a drink and a snack. Now, my son-in-law is a tech guy, and he has security cameras in the kitchen pointing to the back door that Rose would have to pass to enter the kitchen. He asked her the next morning what she was doing in the kitchen last night. She replied that she didn't come downstairs, and he was like, I heard you opening and closing the cabinets for a few minutes, to which she insisted she was not in the kitchen. She was upstairs with the girls all night. Confused, he went to review the security footage, and the camera was offline. He thought she was just sleep-deprived and forgot about getting up, but she swears she was not in the kitchen. Several weeks pass and nothing else happened. Then one morning, Gail was the first one down the stairs in the morning, and they heard my sister-in-law laughing, so she ran down to the landing and yelled, Daddy! She opened the door and went through the house looking for him, but he wasn't in the kitchen or the living room. Rose found him a few minutes later sound asleep in his bedroom slash office. The next event that took place was up in the attic bedroom. Rose was down in the living room with the baby May and called for Gail to come down and join them for the day. Gail said, no, mommy, I want to stay upstairs. Rose didn't argue since she was busy getting May changed, but she could hear Gail upstairs talking. Again, she asked Gail to come downstairs, and she said, I want to stay up here and play with my family. Rose was taken aback and said, we are your family, me, May, and Daddy. Gail said, yeah, but I'm playing with Mother, and she wants me to be up here. Now, Gail didn't call Rose Mother. She called her Mom or Mommy. She probably hasn't even heard Mother as a name for Mom. Rose was shocked and concerned at the same time. She went back upstairs and convinced Gail to come down. The last and most recent event was a few months ago. Gail is now five and May two. Gail, Rose, and May were up watching TV and started to drift off to sleep. Gail sat up in bed and told Rose that Daddy just walked up the stairs into their bedroom and he stopped at the top of the stairs and watched them but didn't say anything and left. She said he probably just came to get his iPad. But Rose knew he wasn't on the stairs and he had his iPad with him so he wouldn't be looking for it. Needless to say, he wasn't on the stairs or anywhere near the room. He was working, and Rose never saw the man that Gail saw, who looked like Daddy, but gave her a bad feeling. I would have been out of that house by now, but so far they haven't had a scare bad enough to make them want to leave. The house is old, and they did contact the previous owner to see if she had any strange experiences. She didn't disclose anything, so either she didn't or didn't want to share. I feel like either they have a mimic or a shadow person who is making themselves known, but I'm no expert. Also, I find it interesting that Gail said she was playing with Mother at the top of her stairs because Mother is what my grandpa always called my grandma and both have been gone for several years, long before Gail was born. Side note, my sister bought our grandparents' home 
And when her kids were little and she was giving them a bath, she got them out and was drying them off and looked up to see Boo written in steam fogging up the bathroom mirror. My grandparents built the house and were the only previous owners. So that's the extent of my stories and thank God I have never experienced anything paranormal because I'm not sure I could handle it. I would have sold, peaced out after my child said she was playing with her ghost family. The house was built in 1907. I forgot to mention that there's also a creepy attic room with low clearance off the bedroom on the opposite side of the stairs. It's empty because nobody wants to go in there. Rose said, Gail sat up in the middle of the night and woke her up because she saw him on the stairs. Dad was working up there earlier that day, but Rose knew that he had taken his computer downstairs already. Rose was barely awake and Gail kept saying her dad was on the stairs. She even called for him, but he didn't answer. By the way, I feel like you were coming close to telling my story and I wanted to say you can use all the names because they have been changed. Thank you for sharing all the stories and I can't wait to hear mine. Also, because I live in the area Adrian Reynolds was killed, I wanted to say Carrie did a great job telling that story, but Harley Quinn did not come out, nor did her partner Sarah Kolb as trans until years after the murder. Also, though they shared a name, Black Hawk Outreach, the school and Black Hawk State Park, where some of Adrian's remains were found, were about eight miles apart, and the family farm where she was burned was 28 miles away from the school. This is a minor detail, but I wanted you to know all the facts since I'm local and I remember it happening. Her father still lives a few miles from the school and has a memorial for Adrian in his front yard. Thanks for sharing her story because it is a senseless tragedy that should have never happened. Creep it real and don't get scared, Becky. I definitely remember doing that story and I love when locals like tell us, that's why I love the sinister sightings and stuff too. When you tell us the things that you know and specifically remember about these stories happening in your area. Because, I mean, the smallest detail coming from, like, a national news, they just can't capture your city and your town and all the places and stuff the way that you can. Right. And it just makes it more real coming from someone who has lived in that area, knew them, you know, all of that. Well, I mean, just even just that what you just told us, thinking about having to drive by and seeing the memorial in the father's yard every day would be so hard. Yeah. I mean, not as hard as, you know, him losing his child, but God. And also, I would have been moved out of that house real fast, too. Oh, my gosh. I know when you said that you're so scared about something paranormal happening to you. I'm the same way. Like, I'm such the naysayer, but. Like I say, I'm cautiously a naysayer. Like, I, if it's something that can put me in harm's way, oh, I believe. I'm not going to do that. Right. I'm not going to play with a Ouija board. I'm not going to do something that's going to get me in trouble. Yeah. Rule follower over here. Remember, guys? Okay, the next one. Hi, beautiful ladies. This is Liz, and I'm back with more stories about growing up in a haunted split-level house. I have two stories about a creepy bathroom on the first floor. Let's jump right in. Story one. The house I grew up in was a split-level house. On the first floor, we had a family room that was located behind the built-in garage. On that same floor was a small bathroom that only had a sink, toilet, and a shower. We used it to store the pet food, snow shovels, and that's where the cat's litter box was. 
the water wasn't hooked up to that bathroom, so you could turn the faucet and nothing happened. That is until late one spring night. That spring, my younger sister, who was a high school senior at the time, was feverishly working on her senior project. Her friend Colleen would sometimes stay the night and weekends with us so she could use our computer, which was located in the family room. For reference, if you were sitting at the computer in the corner of the room, your back was to the garage, and if you looked to the right, you could see the small hallway that led to the bathroom and then up the stairs to the kitchen. However, you couldn't see the bathroom from where you were sitting. One weekend, Colleen told my sister that she was working past midnight in the family room when she heard what she said was a man peeing in the bathroom on that floor. She knew that it wasn't a working toilet, but said that she called out my dad's name and my brother's names, and there was no response. At that point, she got chills down her back. She said that she heard the distinct tinkle of liquid going in the toilet. Another night, Colleen was working on the computer. She had finished for the night and started upstairs to the room my sister and I shared. She entered the small hallway and started to go up the steps into the kitchen, past the creepy bathroom, when she saw a shadowy figure standing at the sink, looking out over the backyard. Story 2. One day, during the summer between my college, freshman, and sophomore years, I was looking forward to my college friend coming to visit me at my house for the first time. Me and my teenage sister and brother were waiting in the kitchen. My friend had called and said that she was close to the house and we were waiting to preempt her knock so our dogs wouldn't go crazy. While we were waiting, my sister suddenly said our dog's name in a stern tone. The kind we use when she's done something wrong. Molly, no. My sister was looking across the kitchen and down the steps to that small hallway that led to the small bathroom on the first floor. Strangely enough, our dog Molly came trotting into the kitchen from the living room. She was nowhere near where my sister was looking. I asked my sister what was going on because the dog had been in the living room. As the color drained from her face, my sister said that she had seen Molly, our black and white spaniel, walking at the bottom of the steps and that she had entered the downstairs bathroom to go root around in the kitty litter, or so my sister thought. If it wasn't Molly, who was it? We made our six-foot-one brother grab a butcher knife and go explore the bathroom. Of course, he didn't find anything. Thanks for reading my stories, lady. Creep it real, Elizabeth B. Okay, before I forget, I love that y'all had the computer in the family room. Mm-hmm. I was like, yep, mm-hmm. Shut I forgot. I was going to say, did you forget your two? And Donna's like, is your brother single? That was probably her number two. <laughs> you know I do like I'm tall. Oh, no, but okay. The man peeing. I literally just talked to Tiffany about this today because we were just talking about like cat litter and stuff. And she was like, I need a cat that's going to use the bathroom, like the actual human bathroom. Yeah. And we had a cat who had been hit more times. Like he had used all his lives. Okay. And his name was Mr. Minks because he would lay on you like a mink coat. That's, you know, I can't name things correctly. Okay. So. Mr. Minks for the mink coat, you know? I never knew that's why that was his name. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> he would. He would, like, lay on your shoulders. So how long was he nameless before y'all named him that? No, he did it as a kid. Like, as a, as a kid? <laughs> He's as a goat. A <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, like, day one, he laid up there, and you were like, ah, Minks. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Minks. Okay. But I'm just saying, like, how long did he have to lay up there? You know what I mean? Like, was he... It continue. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, so, I mean, he had so many things that had happened to him, okay? 
a but, stroke? What didn't he? No, that's the other guy. Okay, got hit. But <laughs> well, that was it. Looked like his son, but he got hit by a car. Uh huh. That's all he, I can remember. He got hit by a lot of cars. <laughs> Y'all did live on a busy street. We did. But this was when we had moved out to the country. Okay? okay, continue. And I had went to the bathroom, and there were like bubbles in there, like you know when a guy pees. There was like bubbles, you know. And I was like, why didn't my dad flush the toilet? But like, whatever. And then I was like, maybe because we all kind of like, it was a small house. So like, maybe he didn't want to wake anyone up flushing it in the middle of the night, whatever. And finally, I had asked my mom because it had happened like several times. And I was like, why is dad not flushing the commode? Yeah. What's going on? She's like, what do you mean? So I asked my dad. He's like, what do you mean? (laughs) Like I do. Well, so I was like, whatever, like something's going on. And I walked in on Mr. Minks standing, like he, him squatting on the toilet. And it looked like I caught him like red handed <laughs> because I like came around, but we were both like staring at each other. And I'm like, you're peeing in the toilet. And he's like, oh, fuck, you saw me peeing in the toilet. But like, what the fuck? Like, how did he know how to I do that? I have no idea. But like he had been doing it. I was like, sorry, daddy. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was a cat. cat. <laughs> but like, it really was this time. <laughs> yeah. Also, I would not be set up late by myself working on the computer if I had seen that. Oh, hell no. I'd have gone to the public library. Just kidding. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I would have still been at your house. <laughs> also, I love that it was like, Molly, where are you? And she's like coming from the living room like... Molly's like, what? No, she's probably like, oh, fuck. What'd they see me do in <laughs> yeah. the living room? But like, not for the thing that they thought. Yeah. Okay, the last one. Hey, ladies, this is Nadine, and I'm from a town called Halifax in West Yorkshire, England. I have a few stories that I would like to share with you guys, and I'll send them in a few stories at a time so you don't run out of stories, as Sinister Sightings is my favorite part of the week. I would like to first say I love you girls so much, and you get me through my cleaning job very easily, even if I do get some strange looks when I laugh out loud and scare the people whose house I'm cleaning. So the first thing I can even remember paranormal was when I was around 22, I had moved into my house and I had a one-year-old daughter. I had a boyfriend at the time who loved to look at me while I was sleeping, and it used to freak me out because I can sense that he was looking at me. Well, one night I got that feeling, so I opened my eyes to ask him to stop, and I sleep on my tummy with both of my arms tucked under me and my head turned to the side. Anyway, I opened my eyes to ask him to stop, and well, let's just say it was not him. It was a bright, white, old man, and he was bent over, so he was in line with my face, very close, looking at me like, who the fuck are you? Well, I have never jumped up so fast, and I made my boyfriend switch sides with me, so I was next to the wall, and then from that day, I could hear talking in the bathroom next door to my bedroom. And when I sat doing my hair in the mirror, I could see a person just walking behind me in the mirror. I never felt uneasy or anything. In that house, it was annoying when in the middle of the night, the sink tap turned on or the shower. He used to turn on the TV too. I moved out of that house and moved into a house I had lived in since I was 11. And well, that's when the fun really started. And them stories will shock you from a little girl to a haunted mirror but I'll save them for another email to help you never run out of stories. Creep it real, ladies, and never stop because I love you both so much. Love, Nadine. Nadine, you better send in all those stories. But why do all these happen in a bathroom today? Uh, right? 
there's always a damn theme on Sinister Sightings. Mm -hmm. But gosh, just how you were describing how you sleep, it sounds so comfortable. What? Like, why when people talk about sleep, does it actually make my eyes heavy? (laughs) You're always sleepy, so it doesn't matter. Facts. Well, I'm so glad that y'all heeded my warning (laughs) because, (laughs) I mean, I really wasn't lying. We still are, as y'all can see, in October. So keep these stories coming. Thank you for splitting your story up and keep them coming. Send them in to us at aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.